Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, um, May the 3rd, 2023. I almost forgot the month. Uh, it's a day of doom today, day of gloom, at least on Keenon. Uh, earlier today, I did a show with the very distinguished and irreverent uh, political thinker, American political thinker based in Austin, Texas, Michael Lind. He has a new book out, Hell to Pay, how the suppression of wages and unions is destroying America. That may be true. Uh, many books have subtitles about the destruction of America. And there are two recent books that are focusing on the destruction of America as a consequence of something called private equity, the kind of companies we all know their names, Blackstone, KKR, uh, Carlisle, although most of us don't quite know what they do. According to two new books, uh, they are the Plunderers, uh, Gretchen Morganson and Joshua Rosner have a brand new book out. These are the Plunderers, How Private Equity Runs and Wrecks America. I was supposed to actually speak to Rosner last week. He rescheduled, so hopefully I'll talk to one of those guys um, in the next couple of weeks. And as it happens, there's another book out with a title about plunder, also about private equity. And we're talking about that today with my guest, Brendan Ballou, Plunder private equities plan to pillage America. And Brendan is joining us from Washington, D.C. His day job is in the Justice Department. Uh, Brendan, is it slightly odd that we have two books out at the same time, both about plunder, both about private equity? Did you know about the, the Morganston book? Well, I've, I've known about Morganson's work for many years, and I knew that they were working on the project. Uh, clearly, we were all drawn to the same adjectives or something because we came out with very similar titles. But I think what they're doing is incredibly important. I'm kind of glad that hopefully this is creating a bit of a moment. Yeah, a bit of a moment. The word plunder, I looked it up. Uh, the word that's often associated with plunder is stealing. Our private equity firms or is the industry itself, uh, Brendan, is it a legal excuse for simply uh, these small, incredibly powerful groups stealing from the American people? Is that your argument in the book? Well, it's a good question. And I should say, obviously, at the outset that I'm speaking in a personal capacity and that my views don't necessarily represent those of my employer, the Department of Justice. So I'd hesitate to use the word stealing because that has legal connotations. But I will say that I think private equity firms have been extraordinarily successful at often taking money from productive parts of the economy and moving it towards the financial or less productive parts of the economy. Um, they use that through a variety. They do that through a variety of tactics. Um, but I think one of the sort of magic tricks of private equity is that they've made all of what they do seem very opaque and candidly kind of boring. So I'm trying to make it a little bit clearer and a little more interesting. So a lot of people are going to be listening to this and horrified with your conclusion about plunder and pillaging, but they won't know what private equity means. You're, um, you're, you're at the Justice Department and, and the focus of your job is 
special counsel for private equity. So in the antitrust division of, of the Justice Department. So you understand it as well as anyone. What exactly is private equity? It's a great question. And I confess, I didn't really know what private equity was until I was months into this project. So I don't think anyone should feel guilty about not knowing the answer. Um, the basic idea is very simple. Private equity firms take a little bit of their own money, uh, some investor money, and a lot of borrowed money to buy up companies. And then they ex make operational or financial changes to those companies with the aim of selling them for a profit a few years later. So it's a very simple idea, but there are a couple problems with it. Um, one is that firms typically invest just for a few years. Another is that they tend to load up the companies they buy with a lot of debt and extract a lot of fees. And then the third is that they tend to be insulated from the consequences of their own actions, legally and financially. And so when you've got those three problems, it's a very simple business model, but it often leads to very bad consequences in a whole range of industries. Some people would push back and say, and, and I'm sure you've heard this million times before, well, that's all very well, but it's legal. So why shouldn't they do it? Uh, and, and secondly, why shouldn't they use any of the, the rules of the game? It may be a bit of a shell game, but why not borrow if you can to invest and make money? What's the difference between private equity, for example, and venture capital? Yeah. So it's a, it's a great point. It's an argument that I've heard a lot. And it's an argument that private equity firms themselves make. You know, when um, the leader of Sun Capital pushed an old ice creamery and diner chain into bankruptcy and um, got the pensions pushed off onto the federal government, he was asked if it was okay to do this. And he says, uh, we don't make the rules. That's fair enough, such as it is. But um, it's in fact, oftentimes private equity firms do help make the rules. Um, Private equity firms are enormously successful in pushing their lobbying agenda. Um, they and investment firms have spent something like $900 million over the past 30 or so years on federal candidates and elected officials. Um, they've hired former secretaries of state, treasury, defense, a vice president, speakers of the house, any number of senators and Congress people to work on their behalf. So it's not just that they are playing by the rules, they're also shaping the rules. But again, and I'm no great admirer of PE or of the system it operates in. They're playing by the rules. Uh, Silicon Valley does exactly the same thing. If anything, I think the Googles and the Apples and the Microsofts of the world spend more on um, in Washington, D.C., where you are lobbying than, than private equity. That's just the nature of American politics, to invest in legally in, uh, in, in candidates, political parties, and, and, and lobbying groups. W what's wrong with that? So the challenge that we've got is that, you know, it's not a moral statement about the people who work in private equity. I know a fair number of them. They all seem like nice people. It's that we have created a legal structure that leads to all sorts of bad consequences, bad consequences in nursing homes, in healthcare, um, in prison services, in retail, and single-family rentals. Um, and it's because of the laws and regulations that we've made. And we in America, I suppose, like many other countries, um, have a knack for essentially creating flawed business models every generation. You know, currently it's private equity. You know, 20 years ago would have been subprime lenders. 40 years ago would have been savings and loans. 60 years ago would have been conglomerates. You know, 100 years ago it would have been trusts. And at each moment, the people that were advocates for those industries would say, we're simply playing by the rules and allocating capital efficiently. But each time, 
the business model plays out long enough that it has pretty disastrous consequences for ordinary folks. What, what are the changes that has enabled this under the law or in the economy that it didn't exist historically? When would you date the rise of private equity, uh, Brendan? So there have been what are called leverage buyout deals since the 1940s. Um, private equity- Which really is another way, another term to, to really describe private equity. Exactly. Um, private equity as a industry really took off in the 1980s, I think as the result of lowered capital gains rates um, uh, that you know, essentially incentivize investment and borrowing um, and essentially borrowing money for the sole purpose of buying up a company. Um, so that was the initial impetus. I'd say that private equity firms have also benefited from a, a longstanding idea in the law that has sort of been turned on its head, um, which is called the corporate veil piercing doctrine, which basically says that if you are an ordinary investor, you can't be held responsible for the actions of the company that you invest in. Um, and that makes sense for most people. You know, I've got a 401k. I don't particularly want to be sued for any of the 100 or 500 companies that are in my index fund because I don't have any control over them. But private equity firms are different because they do have control over the companies they buy and can choose their leaders and often direct their operations. Yet the same law applies to them. And as a result, they are rarely, if ever, held legally responsible for the actions of the companies that they control. And so that legal double standard means that private equity firms get to run businesses but don't have to pay any consequences when those businesses do bad. It's funny that you bring that up because in a sense, it's very much like the Section 230 debate about whether or not um, the YouTubes and the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world should be liable for what gets published on their platforms. Is there an equivalence between the legal double standard you're describing in PE and the Section 230 debate that's raging in Washington, D.C. In fact, the Supreme Court just heard a case around it a couple of months ago. Yeah, you know, the two, I, I'm not a, a, a tech law lawyer, so I can't really speak to, in too much detail on Section 230. But it is an interesting analogy. I think the difference here is with Section 230, it's companies, at least as they would say, it passively benefiting from content that's being put on their, on their platforms. Um, so they have you know, some, but only limited control over, um, over what's, what's being shared and what's potentially causing legal problems. Here, it's private equity firms actually buying businesses, um, loading them up with debt, um, extracting various fees, and then pushing actions that, you know, may cause harm to employees, customers, um, you know, to the business itself, but then can essentially walk away with the money and not have any financial or legal consequences. So I think the analogy makes sense, but there's um, a level of agency and control that private equity firms have that's really unique. Are you suggesting then that if a private equity firm acquires uh, a company, that there needs to be much more stringent rules about what they can and can't do in terms of gutting the company, in terms of laying people off, in terms of reselling it? Well, I don't think we need to have a heavy regulatory hand, but if I can give you like a very quick example here, um, you know, when Carlisle bought up the nursing home HCR Manor Care, which was yeah, time, which uh, has has been got some terrible press as a, a piece of in the Washington Post recently from uh, November of 2018 about overdoses, bed sores, and broken bones. 
Exactly. And it's a great piece. And, you know, that and others are reporting about how essentially Carlisle bought up this nursing home chain, um, extracted a lot of money through what are called dividend recapitalizations and sale leasebacks. Um, health code violations spiked, staffing fell, and ultimately at least one resident died. Um, but when the resident sued, uh, Carlisle was able to get the case against it dismissed, arguing that it didn't technically own the chain. It merely advised a series of limited partnership funds that through some shell companies ultimately owned it. And that was enough to get the case against it dismissed. I bring up that story to show that we don't necessarily need very complicated rules and regulations around private equity. We just need to return to sort of the simple fundamental notion of law and economics that if you get to make the decision, you need to be held responsible for that decision. And I think many private equity firms have been able to sort of exploit that legal gap to tremendous benefit for themselves, if no one else. If uh, you're browsing in the bookshop and you came across your book, uh, Brendan, uh, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America has the image of a pirate on the front with a couple of swords. You might think it was a Marxist critique of American capitalism, but as you're suggesting, it isn't. Some people might suggest, Brendan, that you don't go far enough. You're just looking for a few tighter legal regulations. Do you accept that the private equity system in principle is acceptable and should be legal in America? I think as long as businesses need to grow and build factories and hire people, there is a role for investment. Um, you need people that are willing to risk their money to help help grow a, grow a company. Um, I think that's really important and I think it needs to be protected. Um, the challenge that we've got is that private equity isn't doing that or isn't doing just that. Because of the incentives that they've got, their focus on short-termism, their reliance on debt and fees, their insulation from liability, they have a fundamentally different set of incentives that aren't necessarily pointing towards growing businesses and helping customers and employees for the long term. So I don't think necessarily that private equity needs to you know, cease to exist, just as I didn't think that investment banks need to cease to exist after the Great Recession. We need to do um, what happened after the Great Recession, which is investment banks became uh, vastly less interesting um, because they all got converted into bank holding companies that were regulated by the Federal Reserve. I think we have to sort of take a similar approach and make private equity, in a sense, less interesting and more useful. How do the, the rules around private equity in America compare to the rest of the world? Uh, some of our viewers and listeners will be familiar with private equities uh, takeover of Manchester United Football Club. They borrowed huge amounts of money and they're in the process of selling the company. They're enormously unpopular in Manchester. Uh, I'm guessing, Brendan, because this always seems to come up in our, in, in our show and actually uh, Michael Lynn talked about it today. There are much tighter rules in countries like Germany and Denmark about what you can and can't do uh, in the private equity sphere. I, I sense that that's the case, but I myopically an American and an American lawyer, so I focus, you know, really just on American laws, um, potentially to my detriment. You know, the phenomenon of private equity is obviously happening globally. It's a six trillion dollar business, and you know they're buying up everything from you know veterinary clinics in the UK to Manchester United, as you as you said. Um, I do get the sense that private equity in the United States is um, sort of turbocharged and sort of the incentives problems that it faces. Um, but I, it is a, a global phenomenon to some degree.
uh michael lynn's last book and he was on the show uh, in 2020 talking about it was the the new class war saving democracy from the managerial elite to what extent are private equity firms just a piece of the managerial elite architecture of american capitalism uh in the ft this morning there's a piece about jeb bush's private equity group jeb bush is perhaps the more acceptable side, the more responsible moral side of, of, of the Republican Party. Uh, what kind of people, um, uh, uh, Brendan, are attracted to private equity? We were joking before we went live. You were at Stanford Law School that uh, you don't know any of your classmates at Stanford Law who have gone into private equity. I, I'm guessing there were a few, and I'm sure there were many at Stanford Business School who have gone into private equity. To what extent is this just what smart kids who go to the top universities and business schools go into because that's where all the money is? It's yeah, no, it's a great question. And you know, is as you know, the well-documented financialization of the US economy continues as the finance industry takes up an ever larger share of our businesses. Um, you know, if you're a young, smart person, to use your phrase, that's where the money is. Um, I think people are are drawn to it. I do think that part of the private equity industry's success has been on drawing on, you know, from very elite schools and people with very elite backgrounds and making the industry seem um, prestigious and boring um, when it's really anything but. Um, I think, you know, I think about the history of Carlisle, which is a firm that you mentioned earlier which, um, you know, had its uh, big success, not with a, a first investment, but by a first hire, which is that they hired uh, Frank Carlucci, the secret former Secretary of Defense in the Reagan administration, to help bring in money and, and secure deals. I think a big part of why private equity works for itself, if perhaps not for others, is that they've managed to bring in you know, some of the most successful, powerful, and famous people in government and elsewhere to come work on their behalf. And I think that's part of their secret sauce. Well, it's because they can make those powerful people even more powerful and even richer. We did a show uh, also last month with Rosie Collington. She's the co-author with Mariano uh, Mazzucciato uh, of The Big Con, how the consulting industry weakens our businesses, infantilizes our governments and warps our economies. I mean, you could have exactly the same subtitle for your plunder books about private equity. How much is private equity bound up in the consulting business? Are the McKinsey's and the KKR's and the Carlisle's and the Blackstone's, are they all in bed together, essentially? That's a great question. And it's something that I, I did some informal research on. I didn't include it in the book, but there is a sort of private equity to consulting pipeline that's really interesting. Um, so there is, you know, Bain uh, Capital, you know, emerged from Bain, the consulting group, for instance. So there's sort of a literal lineage between them. Um, but consulting firms often make large chunks of their money from um, uh, you know, working on deal evaluation and operational work for these private equity firms. I think I, I, I may be misstating this, but, you know, I think Bain, uh, the consulting firm said that they were on a third or even a half uh, involved in a third of, of all major private equity deals in a given year. I, I don't know if that's accurate, but it would be an extraordinary number. The, the really interesting entwining that I think is going on, in addition to the private equity consulting relationship, is the private equity law firm relationship. Mm. 
mm. um, which is, you know, a lot of ma major law firms get, you know, perhaps um, the largest share of their money from private equity firms now, both doing both transactional work for them, um, but also litigation work. Um, and so it's really interesting that, you know, as private equity is, is sort of transforming all these different industries, they're also transforming these sort of elite financial or these elite service institutions as well. Yeah. So your your classmates from Stanford Law School have dirty hands one way or the other might not formally be in um, in the private equity business, but they're benefiting from it. It seems like a and if not a conspiracy, certainly a systemic problem. Uh, and they know how to play the game. There's an interesting piece about how uh, from, from Mother Jones, which tends to be very good at uncovering f these sorts of frauds, about how the Carlisle group has presented itself as a climate leader. Uh, but the reverse is true. How responsible or irresponsible is private equity in our climate crisis? Is that one area where you think we need to be more aggressive, we being the state, you guys at the Justice Department, about tightening the laws about what they can and can't do, and indeed what they can and can't say, essentially lying to the outside world, making them appear way more virtuous than they actually are. Well, you know, the private equity, there's, there's really interesting activism going on right now by the Private Equity Stakeholder Project and others. Um, that are trying to push stakeholder. the public. I, I have to admit, Brendan, when anyone uses the term stakeholder, my ears perk up. There's always some fraudulent intent there. I have no idea what that word means, but go on. Well, these these guys are actually activists on behalf of ordinary consumers. So, oh, good. So we yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe they're maybe they're Maybe we'll just call them activists rather than stakeholders. Yes, yes. So, so this organization um, has been pushing for public awareness on a lot of private equity firms' involvement in the fossil fuel industry. Um, I believe that they've been pushing on Carlisle as well as others on that. Um, you know, the fact is that that industrials and sort of infrastructure work um, is enormously profitable for private equity firms, which, you know, invest in um, pipelines and processing facilities and so forth. I think one of the interesting areas that private equity is expanding as it thinks about infrastructure like that is not necessarily on fossil fuels, but just on um, uh, municipal infrastructure. Uh, KKR, for instance, got in the business of buying up cities' water systems. Um, and, uh, and but, but, Yeah, it's it's horrifying, but it's it's the kind of thing that Don DeLillo could write about, uh, this privatization of American life. You, you write about it in an excellent... Uh, op-ed piece for the New York Times uh, from last week. Private equity is gutting America and getting away with it. It's a piece from your book. But the problem isn't private equity. It's the rules in America that allow private companies to buy local water supply systems or local hospitals or the kind of infrastructure that should be publicly owned. Well, and, you know, I, I think this could be the topic of a good Don DeLille novel. You know, I do want to, um, you know, Don DeLille, not the most optimistic guy. I would say that- Well, they're um, often the most accurate. He was the one who forecast this rail crash. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. In, uh, in white noise, you know, 25 years before it actually happened. You know, the, the thing about it is, um, I think if you, the, the, the more abstract you get in the discussions about private equity, which is, which is worthy and important, I think the more hopeless people can get about this and sort of see this as an insoluble problem. And I try to tell people, look, 
I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about this or overly optimistic, but you know, the the mix the the bad incentives that we've got with the private equity business model were the result of specific laws and regulations that we pushed. And if and if we created those incentives, we can change them. And in fact, we have historical precedent for doing it, which is that private equity firms. Um, legally speaking, have a, a really shocking sort of similarity to the trusts of the 19th and 20th century. Mm. And ultimately, those trusts were constrained through, you know, positive activism um, and legislation. So it's not to say that we are guaranteed to solve this, this problem, but we, ha- we can do it because we've done it before. So we need a, 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 a TR, somebody who's going to clean up American life. Your, your book comes with some very nice blurbs, one from Kurt Anderson uh, and one from Zephyr Teachout. Both have appeared before on the show. Uh, Anderson talking about how sick America is broadly and Teachout talking about the monopolization of the American economy. Both call for structural reform of American of American e- economics, of ownership, of, of um and particularly of the monopolization of, 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 of the economy. Are you calling for the same thing? Would you go as far as, as, as Teachout and Anderson, particularly Teachout, who is, is really focused on much more aggressive antitrust uh, regulation? Well, I, I am an antitrust lawyer, so I'm always supportive of aggressive antitrust enforcement. And there are very specific things that I think we can do. I think you know, in the last chapter, I lay out arguably too detailed of an agenda for how to sort of constrain the problems of private equity. Antitrust is one part of that. I think that there's also, but there's a lot of different levers that we can use here. So there are things that DOJ and FTC can do on antitrust. There are things that the SEC can do on disclosure and regulation. Um, there are things that the Federal Reserve can do um, to designate some private equity firms as systemically important. Um, and there are things that states and localities can do, for instance, making sure that if private equity firms buy businesses in their jurisdiction, that those firms are held responsible if there are you know, large layoffs or product liability or something like that. Um, and there's even a role for ordinary litigants and activists in sort of bringing worthy cases to you know, where private equity may be violating the law and raising awareness on these issues. So I, I try to be specific here because I I think it is the more specific we get, the more hopeful we can be, um, and people can see that there really is a way to solve this problem. Right, and you're a lawyer, so you you're, you're paid to be. <laughs> I can't specific. help it. Yeah, I wonder yeah. whether there's there's some sectors of the economy, Brendan, that need to be, so to speak, roped off. I know you you feel very strongly on the. The Manicare uh, issue, you talk about that in your op-ed, uh, in the New York Times and in the book. Um, and I-, I found a piece today about how oncology practices are buying up and turning themselves into monopolies, given the privatization of American healthcare and how important it is for all of us. Should there be particular rules on private equity when it comes to healthcare? Well, there already are some particular rules. Um, call, they're called corporate practice of medicine laws um, that are implemented by the states that sort of do what they say, which is corporations can't make medical decisions on behalf of patients. Um, doctors and other medical professionals have to do this. Um, unfortunately, those laws are very rarely enforced. Um, and a group of emergency room physicians has, that were acquired by private equity firms 
said that these firms were actually violating these corporate practice and medicine laws. That particular case lost, but you know that may be more the specifics of those litigants than to the general issue that we're dealing with here. So I think that there are laws on the books currently that could be used either by states, by the federal government, or by individual litigants that could kind of rein in the power of private equity in healthcare. We just need the ambition to act. A couple of headlines that I found about the SEC uh, adopting new rules around private fund disclosures and buybacks and the FTs reporting these new disclosures too. I assume that you're involved with that. Is the Biden administration doing, I mean, you work for the Biden administration, so I guess I know what the answer is here. Uh, is the Biden administration doing a good job in terms of addressing some of these issues? And would you like it to do more? I know you're not formally wearing your justice uh, department cap in this conversation or with the book. Yeah, no, and I should say I'm I'm not involved in in that project, so I can't I can't speak for it. But I will say I think it's it's you know addressing a very specific challenge that we've got, which is, you know, ordinarily um, a company has has a fiduciary obligation to its investors. Um, private equity firms actually often contract away their fiduciary obligations to their own investors, and as I understand it, this rule would help address that, which I think is really important. Um, so yes, I obviously think that there's a lot of positive things that the government is doing currently, and there's a lot more that could be done, um, you know, in the agenda that I lay out. But I would also say, um, I think oftentimes when we talk about big reforms, um, we immediately think of the federal government, and more specifically, we think of Congress. Um, and historically, Congress has really struggled to address issues related to private equity for a number of different reasons. And so I think we have to think creatively about how to sort of address the flaws in the private equity business model outside of those traditional sort of first run levers of power. And so, you know, I already mentioned SEC, Federal Reserve, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, states and localities. There's a, a whole lot of levers of power that we can be using here to, to try to address this problem. It's all good stuff. Uh, the book is out this week. Plunder, private equity's plan to pillage America. It makes them makes private equity sound like uh, the East India Company almost. Uh, we did a show on that, uh, pillaging almost in a colonial uh, mm. way. Uh, finally, Brendan, um, if we don't rein in private equity, what would happen? What is the 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 darkest? You seem a, a rather cheerful young man. You you um, um, you believe that stuff can be done. But what happens if we get it wrong? What happens if we don't rein in private equity? And what happens if private equity continues, or they realize their plan in in the subtitle of your book to pillage America? What will the country look like? Will it look like? Today's San Francisco, completely decimated, like a war zone. I think, uh, what is it that Hemingway said about bankruptcy? It uh, happens, you know, bit by bit and then all at once. Yeah. Um, I think that... And I think uh, he was talking about Fitzgerald in that sense. And he uh, may have yeah. also been talking about alcoholism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, guess it's a, I guess it's a phrase that applies to a lot of different things. Um, so, you know, I think we, if private equity kind of continues on its current path, I always say it's going to transform the country in this decade, the way that big tech did in the last decade and subprime lenders did in the decade before that. I think what'll happen is a whole lot of businesses are going to get a whole lot less efficient and it's going to redound to, to the harm of sort of customers and employees. 
And then ultimately, they're going to be sort of bigger sort of financial structural issues that private equity raises by their reliance on debt. And that can, you know, lead to, to broader crises. So if we don't do anything, you know, it's going to be um, pretty serious challenges for folks. But I also believe that there are very specific things that we can do to stop that from happening.